So thank you everyone for this beautiful silence. Makes it uh, a bit of a challenge to uh, start talking. Mm. Just a lot of appreciation for the showing up, the degree of showing up to experience that's happening here. As Nathan said yesterday, with great diversity of experience. And certainly for all of us, some moments which are not easy. So just now when I was sitting here and feeling, I don't want to (laughs) talk. I was thinking, ah, how interesting. The first line of my notes is, dukkha arises with push and pull on experience. (laughs) And here here it is, right there. I don't want to. And that sense of that push and pull, that, you know, I don't want that. Yeah, and I want more of that. I want more of the silence. Yeah. I don't want to hear my voice again. <laughs> the dukkha of being a Dharma teacher. There you go. So we've been talking about dukkha and ill-being, suffering, stress, disease, dissatisfaction. And continuing to unfold that exploration and the understanding that um, dukkha arises with this push and pull on experience. With the pushing away of things or with the pulling of things towards us. And then with that, the understanding that uh, dukkha can ease. Yeah, yeah when we understand yeah, what, what the conditions for dukkha are yeah, and also what the conditions for well-being, for happiness are. Yeah. So those two are very related to each other. Yeah. So dukkha arises with a push and pull and experience. But dukkha can be eased yeah, with wisdom, with understanding of what conditions dukkha and what conditions are dukkha, yeah, the opposite of dukkha. And when we reflect, you know, just now I said dukkha rises with push and with pull. Yeah. It also, um, you know, when we reflect on our experience, when there is dukkha, yeah, you can say another way of saying push and pull, degrees of reactivity. Yeah. When there's dukkha, there's reactivity to experience, towards experience. And there's al- also often a sense of a very narrow space, yeah. limited possibilities. And I'm doing this with my body because for me that's really how it feels. It's as if clenched and it's like, can only move this much. <laughs> yeah. Very limited possibilities. Yeah, when dukkha's really going. And so it can be interesting, as we've been doing today, to see, to reflect what happens when I bring 
Yeah? Instead of the conditions of dukkha, I bring in a different way of relating, a different lens to look through. Yeah? For example, the metta lens that we kind of explored this afternoon. Yeah? Kindness, goodwill, friendliness. What happens um, when that is present, when that's the intention, when that's the lens that we look through? Or the anicca lens from this morning. And what happens when I say I'm picking up this way of looking and seeing what happens when I look at something and note, notice, see it as impermanent, see it as changing, see it as inconstant anicca. So you may have seen this for yourself, yeah, and articulated or not, but when a lens like metta or anicca when we use it skillfully, yeah, one thing that it can do is it can ease the push and pull on experience. Yeah. So I see that this is transient. <laughs> the degree of how much of a problem it is just goes down. Yeah. But it goes down along with that push-pull, demand reactivity. Yeah. It goes down along with that, and sometimes because of that. And the same with metta, when I meet some, someone yeah, with a sense of goodwill, with a sense of friendliness. Yeah. And immediately, yeah, that hand opens, yeah, that push and pull is, is limited, is kind of disabled <laughs> as a mechanism. Yeah. And then what happens if we reflect, um, please come in and Come and be comfortable, Anne-Marie, if you're, if you're okay with that. Sorry to put you on the spot, but I really want you to be comfortable if you're going to be here. And that goes for everyone. <laughs> so if you're not comfortable, see what you can do to, to be so. Thank you. And so when the push and pull on experience eases, yeah, there's more spaciousness, yeah? So it's like, remember the dukkha, <laughs> limited? Yeah, that eases, push and pull eases, the dukkha eases, more possibilities, more fluidity, more movement, more responsiveness. Mm. So, you know, this is interesting in many ways. One thing that we can see here is, yes, anicca and metta, like any lens, like any way of relating, impacts experience, yeah? Because when we have more movement, when we have more fluidity, when we have more sense of agency, the experience changes. When there's more spaciousness, the experience changes. When there's no push and pull, the experience changes. So this exploration that the Buddha was so interested in, (laughs) how is dukkha constructed? It's really worth exploring, at least I think so. Hopefully you're finding it at least somewhat interesting. (laughs) It's very easy for someone who spent most of their adult life exploring this to say, oh, this is really fascinating. So, yeah, how is dukkha constructed? And hopefully we can get some motivation to be interested because if we understand how it's constructed, then we also understand how to release it. We also understand how to dissolve it. Yeah? So how it's constructed. 
and can kind of generate some motivation for that exploration. So I want to kind of touch on part of the way the Buddha described the build-up of dukkha. It's only a part of of the process, but for me, the most um, fascinating part. And we're going to have a shorter version, and then later in the talk, a longer version of that. So when there's an experience, Nathan said it very brief this morning, when there's an experience, there's an object, yeah? When there's an experience, there's an object. Something is arising, yeah? Might be a sound, a sight, a taste, a smell, body contact, yeah? Or mental activity, yeah? So there'll be an object, something arises. In order for there to be an experience, the object needs to have contact. Yeah? It needs to have contact with the sense faculty in our heart, mind, body. Yeah? So a sound will be have contact with the hearing and then with a the part of the brain that um, kind of perceives that hearing, that sound. Okay? So there's object and there's contact. So far, so good. Difficult to argue with so far, but do your best. Okay? So, object, contact. Yeah? With that contact, something else arises, yeah? which in Pali is called Vedana. V-E-D-A-N-A. Vedana. Yeah? Object, contact, Vedana. Something we're completely not aware of. <laughs> yeah? And it really, you know, sometimes... We just think, what, how brilliant was the Buddha to notice this? Yeah? Really brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Yeah? And this is like an immediate categorization yeah, of that contact, of that object, yeah, as pleasant, unpleasant, or neither of the two. Yeah? Not enough pleasantness or unpleasantness to warrant a definition. Okay, object, contact, then this Vedana, this pleasant, unpleasant. We might might say, so what? Pleasant, unpleasant, what does that matter? (laughs) It just happens. It matters. (laughs) Okay, so that pleasant, unpleasant, we'll stay with these for now. That pleasant, unpleasant, then starts to escalate, yeah? it starts to grow, yeah? it starts to build. Yeah? And it builds, one of the main building blocks is the next link in the process, tanha, T-A-N-H-A. Yeah? Tanha, usually translated as craving. Yeah? And I'm going to give an example for all of this. But that's the escalation where the unpleasant becomes I don't want, yeah, becomes that push. Yeah. The pleasant becomes that pull. Yeah. And the escalation continues, yeah, from unpleasant, I don't like, I don't want, I can't stand, yeah. yeah it keeps growing, keeps escalating. And very quickly in that process, two things are born. <laughs> One is the sense of self. We'll get to that later. 
The other is dukkha. The other is dukkha. So let's take an example. Okay, usually helpful. So I just walked into the room at seven, a minute before, and I thought, oh, chilly. I felt chilly. So there's the contact, temperature of the air with the body. Not pleasant, unpleasant. There's the Vedana. Object contact Vedana, unpleasant. And then I don't like it. (laughs) I don't want it. I want to close all the windows. But we said you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And you start feeling the dukkha arising. How am I going to do this? How am I going to give a talk with cold hands and feet? Yeah. How ridiculous am I going to look wrapped up in a big red blanket? Yeah. Except everyone else is as well, or at least most people. Some of you are more hardcore. Yeah. So we see that build up, and I'm, I'm kind of making light of it, but we can see situations, yeah? And let's just take some scenarios. So it's cold, I don't like it, I don't want it, yeah? But I don't want to look ridiculous, so I don't put on the red blanket, and then I'm really cold. And then I really, you know, start thinking, like, you know, why didn't I wear the red blanket, you know? What a silly person I am. You know, why do I care? about what they think of, of how I look. Yeah? And the dukkha escalates, the dukkha escalates. So we can see that process and how it leads to dukkha. Is this, does that make sense to people? Yeah. And that, that whole process of escalation. So one really interesting thing here that we can see is how the Vedana, the Tanha and the Dukkha, yeah, they arise together. That categorization of pleasant, unpleasant, neither or. That craving, that thirst, that demand, which is Tanha of experience, to be a certain way for me, they co-arise with Dukkha, with ill-being, you know, to, to varying degrees. For something relatively small, yeah, like having slightly cold hands, yeah, to, to really major things in our, in our world and in our lives. And so they rely, they rise together and they rely on each other so that the experience is built in a certain way. Yeah. The experience is built in a certain way. They kind of are building blocks, but you know, I just said them in an order. Yeah, Vedana, Tanha, Dukkha. Actually, they're, they're mutually arising. They're co-arising. They're supporting each other. So really interesting thing is, you know, without the Vedana, <laughs> none of this can unfold. Yeah? That's why the Buddha, one of the reasons why he was so brilliant by noticing it. Without the Vedana, none of this can unfold. And Vedana, as I said, is, goes beyond, beneath our radar. Yeah? It's usually not something we're aware that we're doing. Um, and it comes out as a fact. <laughs> This is unpleasant. Yeah? This is unpleasant. It's fact. It's a statement of fact. Whereas in reality, it's much more like an opinion. Yeah? Much more like an opinion. Yeah? If we take the temperature of the air, classic. Yeah? So now it feels a little bit cool. Yeah? But if I was, say, in my native country, Israel, in the summer, this would be absolutely delicious. In fact, most people have their air conditioning set to about this temperature. You ever noticed that? It's bizarre. 
co-arises with tanha. They arise together, mutually dependent, mutually supportive. So seeing that relationship, very, very um, freeing for us. Seeing that relationship, seeing how dukkha and tanha rely on that vedana. So back to Vedana and how interesting it is. <laughs> so Vedana as an opinion, yeah? remembering again and again, Vedana as an opinion. And so when Vedana, the opinion of Vedana says, this is pleasant, it's actually participating in fabricating the sense of pleasantness. Yeah? It gives the sense of pleasantness to something. Yeah? Like birdsong. Bird song, ah, beautiful, lovely, pleasant. It kind of inclines the experience to that. And what we need to pay attention to is when that pleasant becomes, yeah, I like it, I want it, I need it, I have to make it stay. I can't survive without it. So I don't know if that's happened to anyone with a bird song yet. <laughs> um, let's see. We still have, you know, almost half the retreat. Yeah, have to keep it. And to an extent, it may have happened. Yeah, it can be quite subtle. But then what happens is that we freeze a moment of experience into solidity. Yeah, and it very much happens with our meditation experience. Yeah, so maybe sitting there. And then things start to calm and collect. And there's something beautiful opens. There's some delight, pleasantness, might be quite mild. And then I'll be, that's nice. <laughs> Hold on to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's happened to some of you. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it happens to someone in this hall every single sitting. Yeah. It's just what the mind does, it snatches. Yeah. And it f- tries to freeze a moment of experience into solidity. Now, of course, when that happens, when we do that, it's no longer yeah, pleasant. Right? We're trying to freeze it. We're trying to we contract around it. And the dukkha builds that way. And as we kind of, the more we do this and it's unseen, we're building more and more a mode of reactivity. Yeah? Remember dukkha's reactivity. And that reactivity can crush any well-being out of an experience. Yeah? Really just crush it. Yeah? That clenched fist. Yeah? When we try to hold on or when we just contract around that. So we kind of, hopefully I'm not depressing you. <laughs> this is just, you know, Sometimes I think our minds are much more fascinating than Netflix. Now, if only we could remember that you know, most of the time. Yeah. Because all of that drama is going on. Yeah. All of that drama is going on. Uh, and remembering we have options. Yeah. We have possibilities. Remembering that. There are options. And so much of what we're doing is learning to see this. Becoming sensitive to it. Learning how to unclench that fist. Unclench that fist. So the more we understand, 
the more we sensitize, we become sensitive to, the more we recognize the conditions of Dukkha, this beautiful phrase that Nathan's been using recently, the roots and roots, yeah, of Dukkha. Yeah, roots are double O-T-S, and then roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, yeah. The roots of Dukkha and the roots of Dukkha, that's how he does it, the roots and roots. The more we sensitize, the more sensitize, understand how is Dukkha being built, yeah? What are the conditions that support entanglement, which is another way of speaking of dukkha. The more we understand, the more sensitive we are, the more release, relief and well-being are available to us. Yeah. Because when we understand, we can unhook. When we understand, we can relax contraction. When we understand, we can turn to Vedana and say, hey, you're just an opinion. Yeah? You're just an opinion. Yeah. Thanks for you know, putting on the act of being a fact, but you're just an opinion. Letting go, yeah, of the causes of dukkha, letting go of those conditions that build, up, build it up, letting go of entanglements brings well-being, yeah? So they arise in that way. Yeah. When we let go of the building, yeah, when we stop constructing dukkha, what arises is well-being, release. Yeah, makes it possible. And so one really crucial shift that comes as we see in this way, as we look in this way, um, and as we've been doing today, is the shift yeah, from looking at the object. Yeah, the object is the cause of my happiness or unhappiness to looking at the relationship. Yeah? So not kind of loosening that fixation that we have with the object or with the Vedana, with our pleasant, unpleasant, and looking at the way we're relating. Because yeah? that's where the freedom is. Yeah? That's where the freedom is. That's where we release this entanglement yeah? in how we're relating. I hope I've said enough about that. I have a feeling there's more coming. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. So the well-being or the ill-being is not in the object or in the Vedana. Yeah, it's in how we're relating to it. We can also ask, you know, where is the happiness? Yeah, where is it coming from? Yeah, where is it coming from? And again, that shift when we ask that, is the happiness in the thing? Yeah. Is the happiness in the bird song? Yeah. Or is the happiness in how I'm relating to the bird song? Because the bird song could be carrying on and we wouldn't be listening to it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Or we would be listening to it yeah. and thinking it's a distraction. I should have brought earplugs. Yeah. Yeah. Having aversion to it. So the happiness, yeah, if we use that example of, of, of the bird song, is in the appreciation, right? It's in the appreciation of that, the beauty of that sound. And that's a way of relating. Yeah. It's not inherent in the thing. So we're shifting attention from the object to the way of relating, and we're cultivating skillful ways of relating.
cultivating skillful ways of relating. Um, And we've been cultivating a lot of them here already. Spaciousness. And what we were doing yesterday, kind of tuning in to to easefulness in the experience through how um, we were breathing or paying attention to sound. Seeing things as inconstant. Bringing metta to experience. The capacity to savor and enjoy the good yeah, the beautiful, the lovely, without demand. Yeah, these are all skillful ways of relating that we're cultivating um, through our practice yeah, and that we can continue to cultivate. Yeah. This kind of possibility to allow things to arise, to be known, yeah, to be enjoyed when they're present, are pleasant, to be respected yeah, and not pushed away when they're unpleasant. And then to pass in its time. So this um, open palm attention. Yeah. Open palm. Yeah. Welcome to land here <laughs> and be here. Yeah. Welcome to, to land here and be here and stay here. Yeah. And if you're beautiful, then I'm going to enjoy you. But not demand that you stay. Not try to hold on to you and crush you. And if you're less beautiful to me in this moment, I'm going to allow you to be there and to pass, to move on in your own time. I'm not going to try and get rid of you, push you away. So this whole journey, this whole um, exploration goes more subtle. That's kind of been one of the themes of this retreat, hasn't it? The subtlety. Things go more subtle. And so we can see this when we look at some of our mental habits, like um, papancha. Has anyone heard this word before, papancha? If you've been on a retreat with us, you certainly have. <laughs> yeah, so papancha means a proliferation of thought. Yeah? And when we kind of, kind of a thought gets stuck and we just think it and think it and think it and then it gets escalated, yeah? into kind of more thinking and more intensity. Mm. And Nathan has this image of, you know, saying we get on the Papancha train (laughs) and off we go, you know, we're traveling high speed, yeah, on this train. Interesting thing about Papancha, we often speak about it as that escalation, as that process of proliferation, seeing how the experience um, escalates and constructs and if we look at it through the lens of dukkha we can see with that escalation of thinking the dukkha also escalates it grows yeah this the kind of the faster that train is traveling yeah the more con- um, contraction there will be but the interesting thing with uh, papancha with all these processes of the build up of dukkha is that there's this objectification Ooh. yeah not only yeah. Do we fixate on the object rather than on the way of relating? We also give the object um, a sense of inherent existence and constancy. Yeah. This is like this. Yeah. And we say that to ourselves a lot. This is where we meet it so much. You, know. you always do this. 
I was just, I just put my, um, I don't even know what you call this, this box that's connected to my headset. I just put it there on my, um, not on my, on the music stand. And then I looked over at Nathan and, you know, we've been together a long time. We can communicate while we're kind of looking at each other and think, yeah, that's the kind of thing I do. And it leads to trouble. <laughs> when is it going, you know, I am like this. I do silly things like that. I put heavy things on a very flimsy thing. And I'm like this. Yeah. I'm like this. Yeah. So we kind of say that to ourselves and we believe it in that moment. We objectify. Yeah, we give constancy. We give essence yeah, to, to objects, including ourselves, to things, including ourselves. Yeah, this is like this, always. Yeah, this is its nature. When we pay closer attention, we see yeah, that objectified thing is being objectified. There's a process here happening. Yeah. And that process, guess what? It has a Vedana. <laughs> We're back with the Vedana. The Vedana is playing a part. Yeah. And we can see the Vedana is added to the object, not in the object. Yeah. Vedana is added to the object, it's not in it. So the phenomena that arise, yeah, the objects that arise in our experience, they get the Vedana yeah, rather than inherently have it. They're not from their own side pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah. And they kind of, we were talking about this yesterday, I think, and saying it's like, it's as if we, s we, we saw and said, oh, this body has a coat, right? But that coat can be taken on, can be put on or taken off. Yeah? That's the Vedana. It's like a coat on a body. Yeah? It's put there. Yeah. It's inconstant. It's changing. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we probably agree that the head is kind of pretty much a part of the body, right? It'd be difficult to take it off and put it on again. Yeah. So the Vedana, uh, the phenomena get a Vedana, but it's not inherently in them. Yeah. And so this precision really helpful because it points to the fact that the Vedana is mind-made, yeah? created by the mind and changes according to conditions. Right? Just like we said with the air, air temperature before. Changes accorded according to conditions. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of, again, one of the gateways that Vedana opens is just to see our experience is so much reliant on the mind, so much shaped by the mind, yeah, just with this particular aspect of it, yeah. Without a Vedana, there's no experience, yeah. There's no experience of dukkha, certainly. And we can see that, you know. This is maybe a little bit cruel, but if you thought of your favorite food, <laughs> yeah, or the thing you've been craving for in retreat, and then you imagined having it three times a day for every single meal, just that, yeah, day after day after day, do you think the Vedana would stay pleasant? That's a trick question, isn't it? Obviously not, because it's not in the object, yeah. It's conditioned. Yeah. It's conditioned. Yeah. 
So I spoke at the beginning yeah, about the wisdom yeah, of understanding yeah, how dukkha is fabricated yeah, and how happiness is fabricated, how happiness is conditioned. Yeah, that wisdom. And this wisdom, so much of it is about attending to the building of things. Yeah? That experience is built, constructed. Yeah? Just remembering that. That, just remembering that, so liberating. Yeah. A physical discomfort, yeah. a fantasy. Yeah. What happens when we remember this is constructed? It's an appearance and it's constructed. It's not as real as I'm taking it to be. Yeah. It's constructed, it's built. Yeah. This is part of what it's meant by this appropriate attending phrase. Yeah. Seeing, this is constructed, fabricated, dependently arising, yeah. made up of other causes and conditions. Doesn't exist by itself, doesn't have an inherent vedana, yeah. doesn't have an inherent way of being. <coughs> to this wisdom of attending yeah, to how things are being built, to the fact that they're being built, the fact that they're being constructed and fabricated. So it can be really interesting yeah, to reflect when we practice um, on what happens when we let go of ways of relating that build dukkha. Yeah like believing the Vedana, <laughs> yeah. the Vedana opinion, like pushing and pulling on experience, yeah. like grasping an aversion, another way of saying push and pull. Yeah. When we let go of contraction, yeah. what happens when we let go of that? Yeah. Part of what we're really interested to see, yeah. really interested to see and to taste. So one thing that happens is more subtlety. Yeah. Because when we let go of um, the ways of relating, the building blocks of dukkha, the experience um, becomes more refined, yeah. less fabricated, yeah. less building blocks. We can imagine, I often imagine it like, you know, the big building blocks, not the tiny Lego ones. Yeah. Big ones, you know, one on top of the other less of them. Yeah. The experience is less fabricated and we can feel it less dense, yeah, more spacious, yeah, more enjoyable. Yeah, a being actually enjoys more refined experiences, less fabricated, less dense experiences. Yeah. And you can again reflect in your own experience moments of ease that you've had. Yeah. Either on the meditation seat or in your walking practice or sometimes, you know, just looking out when the, when the kind of suddenly there's light outside in the morning and you look out and you see this incredible view <laughs> and the trees on the lawn and there's just a sense of, ah. Yeah, in that moment, we're letting go of the building blocks of dukkha because yeah. we're opening to wonder, yeah, to connection and to appreciation. And the being enjoys that, yeah, enjoys the more refined yeah. experience. <coughs> 
that's available then. So it can be interesting to reflect on that and to reflect on the different ways we've been doing this. different ways um, that we're doing that we've been doing this when we've been shifting our attention from where it habitually goes to something else yeah so we've been shifting attention this is another thing that we've been playing with right shifting attention from where it habitually goes to what is more easeful yeah we were doing it yesterday shifting attention from the lens of constancy and permanence to seeing things as inconstant. Yeah? We're going against our habits there. Yeah? It's not the habit of the attention to see it that way. Yeah? From habitual focus to something else, to another way of seeing or to another aspect of experience. Yeah? So what happens when we do that? Yeah? It's going to be really beautiful to explore. And when we do that, we're kind of... Um, not following the roots and roots of dukkha <laughs> yeah, a lot of the time. You know, we're creating uh, new pathways for the mind to travel and the heart to travel. Yeah, new pathways, creating new habits of well-being, new ways of relating. So we can, you know, as inevitably happens, you know, these we talk about dukkha and well-being and I end up at least mostly talking about the unpleasant and about dukkha. (laughs) So what do we do with the pleasant Vedanas? I want to just say a little bit about that. So of course the pleasant Vedanas, I've already said, can also lead to dukkha. But there is another possibility. We can generously give our attention to what is pleasant, to what is heart-opening, to what is nourishing. We were doing it yesterday and we can continue to do that. Really helpful to bring our attention to any well-being that arises in the practice, to any sense of appreciation for ourselves or for others or for the environment. And because this isn't the habit of our attention, (laughs) our habit is the opposite. It's to go to the negative. It's to go to the unpleasant, just like this talk. That's the habit. Because that's not our habit, what we're doing there is we're kind of um, working out our muscles of attention. We are actually um, sensitizing and subtilizing our attention. When we turn it towards something that it's not used to turn towards. So when we give our attention to joy, to pleasantness, to wonder, to easefulness, and we sustain it there, we train to notice and stay with that. Yeah. We're actually also subtilizing, sensitizing the whole system. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which is, yeah, deeply transformative. And when we bring uh, attention to the middle Vedana, yeah, to all that all aspects of our experience which are not strongly enough pleasant or unpleasant to be categorized that way. And that's most of our experience. Yeah? It's only the tip of the iceberg that is pleasant enough to, be, yeah, to have the pleasant opinion attached to it or an unpleasant enough to have the unpleasant opinion attached to it. When we bring uh, interest to that, 
Yeah. What opens up is equanimity. Yeah. Ease. Yeah. Capacity to be with that whole range of experience, which is simply too subtle <laughs> for us to notice. As we bring attention to it, we find oh, there's peace here. There's calm here. Yeah. Sometimes we experience it as boredom because our habit with the neutral, uneventful, yeah, middle ground Vedana, neither pleasant or unpleasant, is to space out or to feel nothing's happening. Yeah. And then Tanha kicks in. <laughs> Remember that one? Wanting some drama. Yeah. Wanting things to be pleasant or unpleasant enough. Yeah. So it kicks in and we build up discontent. Yeah. We build up boredom. Yeah. Yeah. These are build, built up on that neutral Vedana. And yet when we really explore you know, our experience, what's the difference between boredom and calm? It's one of the most beautiful things to notice. What's the difference between boredom and calm? Any sense? Aversion. That's the difference. Boredom is calm with aversion thrown in. Yeah, we don't like it. Or another way of saying it, at boredom is calm without interest. Yeah. So we often have this joke, and if you've been experiencing boredom, please try this. Next time you're bored, try and get more bored. Yeah. Next time you're bored, try and get more bored. And tell us how it went, please. If you succeeded, wow, something. But when we try to get more bored, what we do is we bring interest, we bring energy to it. Can't, we can't sustain it. So boredom is calm, is peacefulness without, yeah, without the interest yeah, and with aversion instead. And again, how the mind shapes experience, right? Because when we know that, we can bring the interest in. We can bring the energy in. Yeah, and we can change that experience. All right. How's the energy going? I've already been talking for about almost 50 minutes, just telling you. And uh, I need to know whether to edit out some bits or not. So uh, just give me a sign. If the energy's low, do that. If the energy's high, do that. And I'll just try and get a sense. Middling. Okay. Nathan's much better at me than uh, editing on the fly. That's really true. Yeah. Okay. So, a little bit about happiness and well-being. Yeah, so we're talking about this sensitizing and subtilizing of our experience and we can bring that interest, that curiosity, that subtilizing and sensitivity also to happiness. So I just said, you know, that middle Vedana, the one where we zone out most of the time, yeah, that can lead to equanimity and ease. Yeah? And we miss that out. Because yeah? we miss out on the fact that there's peace there, that there's calm there. Yeah? Because we're not paying attention. Yeah? And so we can reflect on different types of happiness. Yeah? 
different types of happiness. So there might be, um, you know, excitement, you know, when there's a lot of like bubbliness, yeah, and energy in the system. Um, and that often comes with quite a lot of mind activity. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and it's going to be like this, yeah. And then there's something we might call happiness. These are just words, you can change them around. But another level of happiness, or another type where things are more calm, but there's still quite an alive bubbling in the system. Yeah? And we can feel it in the, in the energy body a little bit lower, yeah? maybe um, around the heart area. Yeah? Often we can feel it. And then there's contentment. Yeah? And with contentment, there's a pleasant well-being in the body. There's a lot less demand on experience right? when we're content. Such a beautiful state of being. Yeah? We're not looking for much, if at all. Yeah. And we can feel that even lower down, often in the belly area. Yeah, that sense of, ah. Yeah. And then there's peace or equanimity, yeah, where um, there's a deep and spacious uh, feeling of calm. And we might feel that even deeper in the body, maybe lower down in the belly, um, or even kind of lower than that. Yeah. So you can kind of see, uh, you know, happiness, we say happiness, we say well-being, there's lots of different flavors to it. Yeah, we can be interested in that as well. And we can see when we go down that list that we've just gone through, you know, the excitement, the happiness, yeah, the contentment, yeah, and the peacefulness, the equanimity. As we go down that list, there's less demand on life. Yeah. There's less push and pull. Yeah. Very interesting. And along with that, there's less loudness and denseness of the sense of self. Because the demand comes with for me. Yeah. More for me. Less for me. That, but not this. For me. Yeah. So, uh, th this can be really interesting to see. Yeah. Again, very liberating. Yeah. So we see when there's more peacefulness, more equanimity, there's less demand yeah? and less me and mine yeah? in the story, in the narrative, in the identification. And important to say here, <laughs> we're not trying to get rid of the sense of self. Okay? Talk more about this tomorrow, but just to make it clear, self is not our enemy. We're not trying to get rid of it. We're interested to see how the sense of self fluctuates along a spectrum. That the sense of self is also not fixed, yeah? not constant. Yeah? And that there's a relationship between dukkha, yeah? between tanha, and between the sense of self arising. Yeah? So that's the addition I said early on. I gave a shorter version of that chain of dependent origination leading to dukkha. We can add another part there, which is the becoming, yeah, the birth of the sense of self, and the identification and the escalation of that. Yeah. And so there'll be more sense of self, more solidity to this, more loudness to this, more denseness to this, me, mine, yeah, for me. So we can look at our whole experience yeah, as this spectrum yeah, 
from dukkha to freedom, from freedom to dukkha, yeah? between dukkha and well-being. Yeah? We've got all these building blocks at play. Yeah? Our experience is constructed yeah? from all these conditions. Yeah? It's a beautiful dynamic. And when dukkha goes quiet, yeah? when it's not being built, yeah? and the self goes quiet with it, and sometimes appearance, object, phenomena also goes quiet, yeah? loses its definition. Yeah. Yeah, so it all goes quiet together, just in the way that it all gets built up together. And the more quiet it goes, the deeper the well-being, yeah, the deeper the peacefulness. Yeah. And this is an ongoing journey, that's the last thing I'm going to say. Yeah. And this is an ongoing journey that actually doesn't have a fixed and final destination. <laughs> we can deepen and deepen and deepen. It goes more and more subtle. Yeah. Now hopefully we can feel the beauty of that, the possibility of that. Yeah, wherever we are in this moment, ongoing journey yeah, of more beauty, of more well-being, of more peacefulness less dukkha for ourselves and for all others that share this wondrous and beautiful planet with us so let's end here for tonight and have a quiet moment together to let things settle in the heart and mind So may our practice continue to nourish the conditions for awakening, for freedom, for well-being in our own hearts and minds. And in this world that we share with countless beings. And may our practice be for the welfare and benefit of all. So thank you for your practice. Thank you for your listening and your patience. We have just under half an hour for some walking practice and just noticing what feels right, but uh, my suggestion is to go out into the night. Always that. Make a drink if you, your bladder allows you to drink this late. <laughs> Make a drink and go out and just feel what it is to be a living being yeah, on this earth in the expansiveness and wonder of the night. I will see you back here at quarter two for the last sitting. So thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.